1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Jorge Giovanetti. He's the author of Black British Migrants in Cuba, Race, Labor, and Empire in the 20th Century Caribbean, 1898 to 1948, published by Cambridge in 2018. This book turns its attention to workers from the British Caribbean islands who were essential to the Cuban sugar industry in the early 20th century. Even as they were deemed absolutely necessary by the owners of that sugar industry, they were often subject to violence and mistreatment. This carefully researched book offers a detailed account of the kinds of obstacles black British workers faced and the ways they responded to those challenges. Using research from at least a dozen archives, this is a key contribution to histories of Cuba, the British Caribbean, migration, and labor. Hello, Jorge. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hello.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: So as we were saying, I really enjoyed your book, and I want to just jump right into talking about it. And maybe we can start out with um, just you talking a little bit about how you came to the project in the first place. Okay.
0: Um, I mean, the, the project for uh, the book Black British Migrants in Cuba uh, really emerged uh, out of trying, I mean, sort of long time ago, out of trying to explore um, a moment in history in which um, two subregions of the Caribbean would meet, uh, basically out of uh, Harry Hooting's book uh, on the two variants on Caribbean race relations, that was sort of the initial uh, sort of thing that triggered me into. Okay, if he speaks about race relations in the Caribbean, in two, in Caribbean's in two different ways, I want to explore a historical moment in which two Caribbean's met. So that's, even though that doesn't come out in the book in its current form, that's sort of what triggered my interest into looking at the experience of British Caribbean migrants in Cuba in a Hispanic Caribbean context.
1: So, actually, that explains a little bit, um, m- m- maybe the, a partial answer to my next question, mm-hmm. which is that you call it. I think it's in the introduction. You call it an unbound history, mm-hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could tell us what you mean by that.
0: Um, I guess in 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 a way, uh, basically, it was unbound in, in the sense that it was uh, it didn't have frontiers, both in terms of regions. And in terms of, of of the subregions of the Caribbean, but also uh, in many ways disciplinarily. Uh, so if we if we take it from Hooten's book, which again doesn't come out in the book after you know so many years working in the project and many other reasons that motivated motivated me into doing it. Um, so they started with a sociological question, a sociological kind of line of inquiry, and then it moved into a historical. Uh, more of a historical uh, research that also uh, nourishes itself from anthropological uh, research and ethnography. Uh, So there's that aspect of it. And then there is uh, the other element in the history itself, which which deals with people moving across uh, boundaries of the Caribbean, across different regions from... Uh, not only from Jamaica to Cuba, but also from the Eastern Caribbean into Cuba, but as well, uh, people that went into Central America and then ended up in Cuba after uh, enterprises like the Panama Canal and uh, banana agribusiness uh, went down. So so in that sense, there's that aspect of uh, crossing boundaries. And then sort of finally, I would say that Uh, with all the uh, sort of more recent emphasis into transnational history, um, I I guess using the term unbound was a way to sort of of frame it into transnational history, but also uh, use another word that sort of expressed my reservations with the term transnational uh, to be more explicit about it. Whereas while I use the term and I, I in the sense that I'm dealing with the Cuban nation and, and, and the crossing of its, of its boundaries, I was dealing with other territories that were not necessarily nations as such, uh, such as the colonies of the British Empire and the British Empire itself. So in that sense, I, I, I had some uh, uh, sort of uneasiness about using the term sort of something that wasn't bound also fit into that uh, aspect of the book.
1: Mm. And by the same token, a project like this really requires a broad uh, range of sources and a broad range of archives, right? Mm. If you're going to be talking about all of these different places. So I'm wondering how you navigated all of those archives. How did you p- pull all of that together?
0: Um, it was very, I guess it, it was very, very difficult to do. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't remember how many archives and, and countries I have there, but probably probably more than uh, 12, 12, 13 archives in sort of nine countries. Um, So it was sort of a a very challenging task. Um, Sort of in in terms of very practical ways of the actual research process, uh, I don't know to what extent we want to get into that, but what I did was sort of the the way I worked with all these many archives, and and to begin, I, I knew I had to tackle that. And, and, and I knew that if, if I were not going to do the project, like going to all these archives, I would not do it. To the extent that at some points uh, th- there were some archives I wanted to see. And I said, no, this is not coming out unless I see that collection and I'm sure that I don't miss anything. So there was that obsessive part of me of, of trying to look for all the archives. But in very practical terms, what I did was that I... For every archive that I did research on, I had uh, a different file in my database and in my computer that would become a document for that archive uh, chronologically organized. So at the end of the day, I have a file for each archive and that file that is in the database, but also in a Word document is chronologically chronologically organized that's a way to i guess for instance if i wanted to look at what was happening in 1917 for instance the massacre in Hobab of the british was indians then i would know what was documented about that event in the different archives for that year so that was a way a very practical way uh to To organize it, a colleague of mine told me, asked me about it. Oh, do you still have those bound, uh, you know, uh, bound folders with all your archives? I said, Yes, I do have them. So, so that was a way to sort of uh, to make all that uh, data, all that information, manageable. Otherwise, I would, you know, I don't know how I would have managed. But, but certainly, there's the Public Records Office now called the new the National Archives, local archives. Um, such as Spanish Town in Jamaica, the Archivo Nacional de Cuba, National Archive in Cuba, but also a lot of provincial archives and as well as company papers such as United Fruit Company papers in Cuba or the Cuba Company papers in uh, Maryland in McKeldin Library. So, so it was sort of organized by archive and chronologically that that was the better way to do it.
1: Ah, I see. Um, so and at the same time, I mean, you have this very broad reach you really sort of as you say traveled all across the Caribbean and you're able to put things together in that way. But I noticed also that you the book gets very close and it gets to individuals and it gets to stories of people, right? And I noticed that one of the things that you did was you used the Erna Broadbur interviews and I was really happy to see somebody using those interviews because they've always struck me as being so so rich and so full of potential. Yeah. How did you find them?
0: I guess I knew about them because my my first book was in Jamaica and I was on reggae music on Jamaica, so in many ways I was familiar with the uh, Jamaican and, and British West Indian scholarship, Anglophone Caribbean uh, historiography and social sciences. So I knew they existed. Uh, I I I didn't I didn't know that they were so rich until I, you know, when there to see them um so so i knew it so it was just a matter of going there you know finding a way to get into jamaica uh for the for, uh, for you know for to to look at that specific source and that's what i did uh it's it's, it's an excellent source as you know in terms of of its quality uh the, the details it has you know and i guess you know Caribbean scholars should be forever grateful to Erna Brodber for uh, doing that work, Um, and it's something that you know really should be recognized. That it was not only for her own scholarship and the, I think the two books that have come out of it, but also it has helped the work of people like me, Lara Padnam, Julie Green, and others. Uh, But that was I I I, that was the way I, um, I did it. I just knew that the source existed, and I would then sort of look for the way to go to those sources and see them. Uh, That applies to other collections I used that I knew existed. Uh, Let's say the Carl Withers collection that I'm using now, but that I also use for the book. I knew it it existed, so it was just a matter of uh, getting there uh, to see the collection or also, um, yeah, the William Gonzalez papers. Uh, Gonzalez was the ambassador uh, to Cuba, uh, U.S. ambassador to Cuba in, during the massacre in Hibabo. Um So I knew they were in South Carolina, so it was just a matter of, you know, getting to South Carolina and see the papers. Um, so that, that was, a, you know, the way it happened with the Broadbent uh, materials on Jamaica.
1: Was there anything that you really wanted to find at some point and you just couldn't get to, or it, some, some kind of source that you really wanted, but that just didn't exist. Mm,
0: I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I exploited as much as I wanted, I guess, I, I guess, it, um, I would have be loved to be able to do more interviews to surviving, uh, uh, uh individuals that made the journey, that made the migration. I did, had a lot of conversation, uh, with many of them while I lived in Cuba. Uh, but didn't do that many interviews as I would have liked to do. I mean, probably that would have turned the project unmanageable. Uh, (laughs) but that's, but that's probably something that I uh, probably would have loved to do more. Um, other people have done it, like Audrey Charlton, uh, and and, uh, Charles Marshall in Barbados. Um, but, but I guess now that I mentioned the William Gonzalez papers, uh, you know, that was one source that I was, you know, that I didn't want to miss, you know, that I wanted to particularly with dealing with that episode of, of violence. I, I really wanted to see what he had. It didn't have, uh, as much as I wanted in terms of uh, sort of proving, you know, as as, as a historian, you're sort of trying to prove your argument uh, beyond the doubt, you know, and uh, there was not that much, but there was enough to sort of make, combine it with other sources and make an argument as to the involvement of uh, Mario Garcia Menocal in uh, in the violence that ensued during the Chambelona revolt in 1917.
1: So a lot of the book is framed um, through this idea of racial fear mm-hmm. that you argue kind of prevailed just as British West Indians were arriving. Yeah. And I was wondering about that because a lot of Cuban history and sort of historiography, including even some of the things that I've written, has been defined as intention between racism and anti-racism. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering um, if you can talk about where on the spectrum – within this tension of racism and anti-racism, does your idea of of racial fear fall? How does it work with that?
0: Well, in many ways, I think that the, I mean, that idea um, sort of emerged out of the scholarship. There's an element of it that is not, uh, I guess that is not in a book and it's probably, you know, I'm trying to make a, a separate piece because in order to make the argument about, about racial fear, I had to sort of go back to the 19th century, which is not covered in the book as, you know, uh, thoroughly and systematically, but it only sort of, as a, as a good historian, I sort of wanted to have the 19th century first in order to speak properly about the 20th century. So the idea sort of comes from there. And and I, di- I, I wanted to be sure of how to... Um, uh, how to sort of give proper evidence of how that fear manifested itself, rather than just saying there was racial fear and that was it without giving evidence of how that fear manifested. Uh, so there was that element there, but in terms of, of, of how it fit between the debate of, of of racism and anti-racism, it was certainly something that, uh, sort of in a way guaranteed that, that, such a strong uh racism or anti-black racism would persist in cuba uh, even despite all the efforts uh, and struggles for racial equality all the advances of 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 people of african descent in terms of organizations and militancy and even getting into uh, political life um but there was oh i mean i think that the element of racial fear in a way sort of guarantees in a in a, in a, in a way, in a sad way, it guarantees that, that, uh, you know, that there will be, you know, this very strong racism and this very strong fear, uh, against a black, uh, black people and particularly black men, um, as well. So, so, so I guess that will be a way in which, um, or, or sort of one element that would guarantee sort of the, if, if you sort of want to um, speak about the, the racism and anti-racism debate as a scale. So that would put the scale more into the the sort of persistence and endurance of racism, even to this day in Cuba. Even even with all the successes, uh, both in the early 20th century with the 1940 constitution and the struggles for racial equality, but also Uh, later in the 20th century and early in the 21st century. I mean, there are moments still uh, that I have documented while I was doing my research where, you know, that fear of the black criminal sort of comes out uh, very clearly. So I I guess that would be a way. I don't know if that sort of answers uh, your your question in terms of that debate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's clear is, Or that makes your argument clear is the way that you track a lot of the violence against Jamaicans, and you argue that it was specifically directed at them. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the nature of that violence.
0: Yeah, I guess in many ways it was, um, and and I guess to go back to the whole um, issue of the argument one uh, and and the sort of racial fear and where people in in that debate like uh, Alejandro La Fuente, Alin Helk, and, and others sort of located themselves. I think that the fact that 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 I guess the the book proves in a way both for 1912 and 1917 that uh, even when all those uh, efforts by people of African descent were there, ultimately that violence took place against black people, and that violence was uh, very much anchored in that fear. So, so, so that's that also. Um, I think that was sort of something that I really wanted to put there. You know, ultimately, sort of violence would take place depending on the context. Um, in terms of, of of the violence against uh, British Antillians and Caribbean migrants in particular, both you know Jamaicans and British West Indians in general, but also Haitians, it manifested itself in a in a in many ways. Uh, from the harassment by the rural guards uh, uh, that were the sort of guards for the government in in rural Cuba, uh, government military officials, but also uh, private security guards from the sugar companies in company towns like the Cuban American sugar company Chaparra and Delicias. They had their own private guard, private security guard called the Guardas Jurados. And they would also be uh, hostile and aggressive to the, uh, to the British Antillians, either by, uh, hitting them, by stealing their money that they were planned to, um, to send away for, uh, as remittances. And then there are those moments, uh, of economic or political tension, whether that is, uh, 1921 with the, uh, you know, the fall of the markets or the 1930s or the The same with the different revolts, in which black people became the target. Uh, If something was wrong, you know, that was the black migrants became the scapegoat. Uh, Whether if it was an economic depression, it was because they were seen as, uh, you know, stealing the jobs of uh, Cubans. uh, But also uh, as the ones that would bring uh, illnesses and diseases uh, which was another uh, level of discourse against uh, against the migrants. So, so in many ways, they they became the guilty ones and 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 someone uh, to blame against whom uh, white Cubans or security guards very easily, um, you know, put the blame on and became aggressive to uh, uh, one. To give you a, 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 an example, which is in the book, in the during the Chambelona revolt, uh, black people became the very explicit target to the extent that when they were surrendering themselves to the Cuban military, the the reason for surrendering, and this is from the archives in Camagüey, uh, that that they wrote down in the in uh, a specific document. Of surrendering, of presentaciones in Spanish, uh, basically specified. You know, we are surrendering because they are killing the blacks. So, so, so that was repeated in many of the uh, surrendering documents, showing that that blacks became sort of target targets in a very, very uh, uh, direct way and empirical way, in the sense that it was proven. So, so there was a a, a big scope of ways in which that violence uh, manifested itself uh, uh, sort of very, very drastically from actual uh, murdering to abuses or just uh, plain disregard uh, of their, uh, of their needs as workers uh, or as migrants.
1: And yet this is one of the things that makes this book so interesting is that almost everyone was interested in getting more West Indians to Cuba Right, at least from an official perspective. The British, the Cubans, the Americans, they all coincided on that front.
0: Yep, yeah. I mean, there was uh, that moment which uh, it was a necessary evil for the Cubans if they wanted to produce sugar. Of course, uh, U.S. interests were, um, you know, they they needed that labor as well as uh, Haitian labor, uh, Haitian migrants as well, which became a, an important part, and and at different junctures, I- even the British, because they were the second largest consumer of Cuban sugar, and particularly that becomes very, very important uh, during the, the, the global conflicts, the First World War and the Second World War. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in many ways it went against uh, Cuban interests, and, and so there's that contradiction whereby you would find... Um, Many uh, politicians and intellectuals and sort of uh, letters in the press expressing their discomfort, their racism, their discrimination against uh, the black migrant, whether that's the, the, the from the British Caribbean or the Haitians, uh, but also at the same time, sort of, um, you know, admitting that they needed them. And that even happens with the with the Cuban labor. You know the working class, a given working class. Um, so, so that contradiction is there. O- of course, it crystallizes during moments of economic crisis. So, like in 1921 or the 1930s, that becomes uh, um, you know very obvious. You know, it's like, like we, you know, they can deport them because of the economic situation. Um, so, so that element certainly, uh, that contradictory element was there, which, which I guess is something that. Uh, happens in many uh, in many societies that receive migrants nowadays. Whether we speak about Haitians in the Dominican Republic, uh, Dominicans in Puerto Rico, or Mexicans in the U.S., so that's, that's something that is there.
1: The book also works from the perspective of these black migrants, right? And one of the things you talk about is Garveyism, and I was interested in that because it's I think it's been understood as less important in Cuba. Um, Than
0: you argue it was. Yeah, yeah I mean, Garveyism. I think that, you know, many people have been writing about in Cuba. I mean, Cuba was the the country with most uh, branches of the UNIA of the Universal Negro Improvement Association after the United States. Uh, so, so it was a, a really a stronghold of the movement, and it was very, very important. Um, for Garby to the sense that uh, Garbi visited the place, but also other leaders like George Alexander Maguire and visited also Cuba. So it was it was very, very important um, for the Garby movement in terms of its international reach and hemispheric uh, reach and also in the, in particularly in the region. Uh, the one detail about it uh, which was fascinating to me is that it didn't necessarily operate at Fully as a as a as a, a black organization uh, strictly, or strictly as a black organization, or as an organization for the African diaspora, uh, on, under that rubric, but also it operated as more a, a as a religion in a way. So it, that element, that religious element of of the, of the Garby movement sort of crystallized in a, in a very strong way in Cuba. If one reads uh, the documents and the, and the, and the materials uh, that come out of it, for instance, the services that get reported in the Negro World the newspaper. Also, the fact that George Alexander Maguire visited Cuba in the, in 1921 as well as Scarby in a separate trip, and he was, in my analysis, I think he was sort of received in a, in a with the communities in a very, uh, in a very strong way, in a very sort of uh, so was very well received. Uh, so that element is there. One of the reasons, of course, is is that probably was behind this was the fact that. Uh, after 1912, and after the Morua law and the, the prohibition of organizations uh, that were explicitly racial, as a partido independiente de color, there was some uh, deliberate attempt by the Garbiites in Cuba to conceal mm. the racial element. And that comes clearly in this emphasis in the religious way, but also very Very clearly, in instances in which, when the organization was going to register with the government uh, in the Registro de Asociaciones, the association's registry with the government, they would put instead of the, they would register the organization instead of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, they would register it as the Universal Improvement Association uh so 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 there's at least one or two instances in which sort of the world uh negro gets sort of silenced or erased in order to uh, fulfill their major goal which is basically to at least have the organization active uh but what was very very important even even after garby passed away uh you know the, you know and, and the garby movement sort of collapsed in the United States still in Cuba they were very, very active, um, one very memorable moment, uh, during my, my field work, uh, in Cuba was this, uh, moment where I went to interview one, uh, elderly woman in Hobabo and, you know, and, and I'm sort of, I'm doing the usual introduction as a researcher, explaining her before the interview, explaining her what I'm working about. And when I mentioned the word Garby, she immediately, I haven't taken out, you know, my tape recorder or anything, and she immediately said, uh, the door of Africa opened for all the Africans. Uh, and it was sort of that moment where you sort of could see the lasting impact of garbage in in, in the country. And this was an Afro-Cuban woman, so it was not uh, not even one of the British Antillions, but but an Afro-Cuban woman that obviously lived and shared uh, her life in in one town, which had a strong uh, British Antillian community.
1: So another strategy that the black migrants used was something that you call epistolary activism, which I think is such a lovely phrase that says so much about bureaucracy and power and the perception of power. Can you talk a little bit about how it worked and how effective you think it was?
0: Yeah, I think it was very, uh, very, very effective. Uh, and and basically uh, it, what, what you see when you go to the to the archive, so one of the sort of the main uh, pieces of evidence that I was lucky to have uh, in order to write this book was that British West Indians or British Antillians would write; they felt entitled uh, to to the uh, attention of the empire. They were British subjects, and they either Truly and genuinely believed that, or were very tactical and pragmatic about it in terms of how they could use that imperial allegiance. So they would write to the consuls in 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 the in the different provinces or the vice consuls, seeking attention whenever they had trouble with the Cubans, or when whenever there was a salary dispute or any other issue, an incident of racism and discrimination, Uh, and generally. Uh, and this is another uh, way of of racism. Generally, the vice consuls would sort of disregard them completely. They would not pay attention. And what they did was that they would start to write up the bureaucratic ladder of the British Empire. So, that, so once they had, they don't have a response from the vice consul in the provinces. They would write some of which were actually very connected or involved or related to the either the sugar companies or uh, or even the, the, the very process of blackbirding or migration between the colonies and Cuba so once that didn't work uh, they would write to the British uh, embassy in in Havana uh, and if that didn't work then they would start to write to different offices of the British Empire some of them that were veterans of, of the of the First World War, the British was in regiment, would write actually to the war office uh, so that the war office could make the argument on their behalf. Others would write directly to the colonial office, to the foreign office, and even to the king, you know, to, to King George himself. Uh, so they would. For, they, they felt entitled that they could do, do it. And that was, for me, that was just amazing. And the, the language they use uh, to make their to, you know to make their argument and put the, their point across uh, in a very convincing way. Um, so that that was sort of the, the escalator, the bureaucratic escalator that went and the effect it had was that once it reached a certain point in the in the hierarchy of the empire, the either people in the foreign office or the colonial office would make an inquiry to the consuls, in the island and then the consuls would feel that they have to give an explanation so 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 it was a a, a very smart and intelligent way in which i think the british antillians put uh the consular uh officers in the spot uh they would also write you know, there were different versions of it they, they would also write to the colonial governments in jamaica or in dominica or to specific lawyers uh, or people in newspapers in, in the islands. But it was a way sort of to put pressure from abroad. And in that way, um, British consuls would feel uh, compelled to act. Uh, and that happened uh, in many moments uh, because they, they, you know, they had to provide a response. So, so I think it was a, a very smart move. Uh, it is not, you know, I think other imperial subjects would do something similar, would, do, would appropriate the language of the empire as it happened. Um, I think the, I was inspired by the work of William Roseberry uh, for Mexico, but also, you know, the work of David Sartorius on Spain and Cuba in the 19th century, you know, brings that element as well. So, so yeah, I, I, it, it was a, a, an element that was surprising because it's not necessarily, uh, you know, there's an element of the historiography that wants to serve to, you uh, to sort of to do the the heroic uh, black African diasporic struggle uh, without taking into account that there were other sort of more complex and even contradictory ways that did no, doesn't necessarily fit with the uh, with a with an assertion of blackness or, or um, that that was garbageism and that was there. So this this. This element brought more complexity to the whole picture and, and a history that is just uh, massively uh, complex.
1: So one of the another one of the historiographic kind of common places that you take down is the effectiveness of the 50 percent law. Yeah. So I think that most people argue that that really reduced the mu- the number of immigrants in the country. But you you actually argue that a lot of them left, but a lot of people stayed. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so that that fifty percent law is not the kind of um, benchmark that we usually see it as.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that was probably one of the most. Uh, I mean, it tells a lot about how we how we think about chronology and where we put the boundaries on our study. You know, the first iteration of this book was uh, a doctoral dissertation that stopped in the classic moment that everyone stops, which is the 1930s, either 1933 or 1938. And it was only when I sort of decided to sort of build on the book and extend it further and look at documents in the 1940s that I really said, you know, there's something more to say here. You know, there's uh, something that happened uh, after the 1930s. Uh, and that is that after thirty-eight. Uh, you still have tens of thousands of British Caribbean migrants living in cuba uh and 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 you know uh, and working actively and organized in 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 the Garvey movement or in other associations so in in a way um, that one of i think one of the effects that uh, one of the reasons why this happened was that um if if the if the consular actions had some effect after many episodes of 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 diplomacy, like the one after the massacre and the white papers that were published in nineteen twenty four, was that the Cubans were more um, um, more um, sort of lenient, if you want, with the British Antillians than with the Haitians, which had uh, you know. Uh, a really rough time in terms of the deportations and the treatment by uh by the Cuban government. Not that the uh that the British Antillians didn't have it because my my book actually you know proves that uh not only that it happened to all these the black migrants but that it was more complex than uh, than the easy argument that the British Antillians had it easy because they had the consuls and the Haitians didn't. And of course the work of Matt Casey uh you know uh, uh, empires guest worker is a wonderful book that deals more with the Haitian part of the uh, of the equation but certainly uh, there is a moment in the 1930s and 40s where where you see that the that the Cuban government is sort of being more relaxed about uh, leaving some of these British antillians just stay in their communities particularly in places like the Cuban American sugar company that as as company towns they were sort of secluded and they operated as a state within the state and and as long as they didn't bother uh, the general Cuban population being in, in the chaparral delicias they were okay uh, but at the end of the day when things you know when push come to shove uh, after the 50% law in 33 and after the massive deportations of the 1930s you still have thousands of uh of british Antilles there living and for those of us that uh that went to cuban and, and spoke with some of the descendants and, and, and so people like uh you know like some of the the ones that were still active in 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 cuban uh, educational field like alden knight and the artist field um you know people that are that are that you see you know there is a, a legacy to that community but so that's one thing but but when you see the actual numbers of the ni- after the 1930 says you, you you really start to uh, raise a different uh, set of questions and that's probably what happened uh, when I expanded the chronological scope of the book to the 1940s uh, to find out that many other things were happening and were taking place that involved not only the Cuban story, uh, in terms of how they dealt with uh, with the, this black presence in the island, but also a Pan Caribbean story that involved uh, the the British Caribbean colonies and and how they you know how they dealt with the fact that they had all these British subjects uh, living in Hispanic Caribbean context abroad. Um, so it's it's certainly. Uh, the story goes beyond the 1930s uh, in 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 very fascinating ways.
1: Yeah, and just to pick up on that, you do open up the 1940s, um, and it's a period that not we don't have that much on for Cuba. And one of the things that you say, which I was startled but which made sense to me, is that um, there's this desire for what you call a national utopia of whiteness, mm-hmm. um, and even Ortiz. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, participated in this, um, and so it really sort of brings out all of the strands of, of those kinds of things that get forgotten in all of the attention to the 1940 Constitution and all of that. Um, so, so wh- how do you think about the role of these British West Indies Indians in the, in the national imaginary in the in the early 1950s, just on the eve of the of the revolution? Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I guess that's a story that follows, you know. After, I mean, whoever, you know, is going to uh, write, the, you know, what 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 happens after the nineteen forties. But I certainly, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, it 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 was clear to me that it that how can I put it that that as much as many of the elites and the intellectuals wanted to. Uh, to create this national imaginary, they, 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 they couldn't escape the presence of uh, British Antillians and Haitians and, and other groups. They had to, to deal with them. Uh, so, so in many ways, uh, sort of in the 1940s, when you have uh, sort of the, the, the making of the Constitution, and the, so, but still you see that struggle to trying to uh, ignore something that is clearly there. And that was going to stay. Uh, so, so there's an acknowledgement of the Afro-Cuban element. But there is, uh, and, and in that sense of blackness within the nation, with, you know, limits, of course. But there is also a way in which uh, language and culture become elements for difference. So, so if you put language and religion, then that would put, you know, keep, that would keep the British Antillians away. Um of course what happens is that they stay, they create their communities. Uh after the revolution, many of them remain there, uh active and taking a role sort of very much underground, but you could see them uh I mean when you when you I, I mentioned already Alden Knight but uh people like uh Cuban, uh, Teofilo Stevenson and other people that were, you know, of renowned names that come from British Antillean heritage, then you know that that presence is there. Um, in the 1970s, there were stronger links between, uh, Jamaica and Cuba because of the uh, manly government in Jamaica. And uh, so that also, uh, generated, uh, some, uh, some more linkages, but 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 still, uh, British remain uh, sort of on the margins. It is not until, of course, when the revolution wins, uh, you know, Castro sort of admits, you know, and, and there's a speech in which he admits, you know, these are people are part of us, and he recognizes their contributions. But in many ways, during the revolution, they remain with this sort of exceptional people, you know, like Stevenson, like Alden Knight, and others. Now they remember silent, and it's not only. Only recently, in some of the scholarship coming out of Cuba, that uh, with people like Raciela Chalux and others have um, highlighted all the diversity within the Cuban nation that is not necessarily a monolithic uh, element. So, so I think what I would say is that uh, that there was a persistence of the Antilles, sort of, to a sort of a staying power, if you want, that that was going to bother whatever national project they wanted to sort of build in the 1940s you know whether in the voice of uh, Maniac or Ortiz in that period Uh, and then they remain after that partly because they didn't wanted to leave they were uh, they had made families then, but also the British was Indian. Gov- the British was Indian government didn't want them because they were dealing with their own crisis uh, in terms of uh, economy and, and politics. So they they remained there in that limbo. The revolution came. Uh, sort of they stayed living in their communities, whether that was Paraguay, or whether that was Chaparra or Delicias, and, and and remained somewhere, you know, some somehow hidden. Uh, and 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 secluded in those communities where, if you still go now, as as is shown in Gloria Rolando's film *My Footsteps in Baragua*, um, you see that you know they remain as a community, as a very strong community. So so that they 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 are there, you know, they are there as a as a strong presence, even even if they didn't want to be recognized uh, at specific moments by specific um, people, you know, but with certain uh, national discourses.
1: So I've taken up lots of your time, but before we go, I, I want to uh, bring it back to the UK because you do so in the book. And then I know that you've written a little bit more about that, especially in light of the Windrush controversy, et cetera. And really in the book, um, you know, I had to, I had to sort of close it and then think about it for a little bit, but you do actually critique the British colonial officers as much as the Cuban or American participants in the, in the kind of racialization processes. Um, And so I've just, I would love to close with you sort of thinking a little bit about how do we, how do readers think about this stuff today? How would you like readers to, to to come away with this um, and put it in context of of the kinds of things that we're seeing about immigration uh, in our, in our own lifetime?
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that there is, um, I mean, one always want to sort of in sort of in writing history, you, you always want to think of you know how how your project is relevant to the contemporary moment. And Of course, you know the past is a past because there is a present, as Michel Rolf through your said uh, <laughs> once. Um, so 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 the the story basically repeats itself. If if you think about, for instance, you know again thinking about uh, migration context, uh, uh, you know the the Abby Chomsky's book on the myth, uh, the you know the myths of uh, I do not remember the name. They, they they what's the name? The title of the book. Uh, they they still are jobs and the twenty myth of immigration that is written from the U.S. context, but also with a sort of global scope. Many of those myths repeat itself in other sort of migration histories that we have explored in the past, and and that certainly happens with uh, with the uh, with the British antillians in Cuba, uh, so so the criminalizations uh, the, which we see now in the U.S. with uh, with the president and also in Europe, the criminalization of the migrant, the migrant as damaging to the national body and the whiteness of the body. Whether we think of the of the body of the nation, I mean, whether we think of uh, Enoch Powell in in the 1960s in Britain, or more recently, uh, with the debates of the Windrush uh, generation after the scandal in 2018, uh, so after the scandal broke out, so so there are elements that remain the same, and and, and in, in a way, without repeating the the tried argument that history repeats itself, because of course it is not the case that it repeats itself in the same way, but uh, but there are elements that we can learn from, and and and. I remember uh, Lennox Honisher, the historian from Dominica, that, you know, he was intervening in a contemporary debate in Dominica uh, in a television discussion. And he said, well, I have seen this uh, this box before. Referring to the fact that he have seen that discussion in a previous box in the historical archives. Uh, and we have much to learn from it. So um, certainly there's, there's much to learn about how um black people and people of color and people of african descent are discriminated uh, when they are migrants but also much to learn about how national imaginaries are the ones that uh you know specific national imaginaries of whiteness are the ones that you know that that create the environment for that discrimination so that's one element of it a second element of course Speaking about the Windrush is that uh, the Windrush uh, scandal is that you know there there's a continuity here in terms of uh, the debates about race and blackness and whiteness and in what relates to uh, the discussion that ensued uh, after these people from the Windrush generation were uh, deported or put in detention camps. You know that history of of seeing Britain as white uh was there before and it, it was there before in a, in a different historical moment, but also in a different hi- uh, geographical context. so there there's there's much to think in terms of um, sort of learning from history, but also being able to see the continuities uh, in historical uh, trajectories of different countries.
1: Well, that's a lot for everybody to think about, yeah. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful talking to you today. No,
0: it has been a great pleasure. It's you one of those uh, pleasurable and great occasions when one, you know, gets to speak a lot about about, you know, something that one devoted so much time in doing and so so I really I'm really grateful for your time and, and the opportunity.
1: It's a pleasure. Okay.